Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do Death. Hi, Dad. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, and Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you had a good Christmas and uh, suitably safe New Year celebrations. Yes, fingers crossed you managed to avoid COVID, even though it seems like the vast majority of people that I know didn't. <laughs> uh, so. It's really odd because I don't think I know anybody that's had COVID. That's so weird. I would say literally about three quarters of the people that I know have had COVID over Christmas. I can't. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> they know anybody. Maybe I just don't know many people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's been, it's been weird. But touch wood, we uh, seem to uh, have been able to avoid it so far so good it's like it's good <laughs> yeah we hope you enjoyed the quiz that we did in our last episode just as a sort of a roundup of some of the cases that we did in 2021 yep that was uh, it was good fun that i won uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was good to kind of revisit all of those bits and pieces yeah and there's there are others is just make sure you realize just how many yeah. cases we have covered in the well since we started in february 2021 <laughs> yeah at least another 40 or so so yeah <laughs> thank you lisa for getting in touch and telling us that you enjoyed our quiz even though it did distract your driving <laughs> yeah sorry about that <laughs> it's uh it's, it's good to know that uh that you're listening thank you yeah thank you this week phoebe as the first episode of 2022 i'm going to tell you about probably one of the most infamous murder cases of the 20th century that happened in London and that is the case of John Reginald Halliday Christie hey who famously or infamously lived in a property referred to as 10 Rillington Place cool now this this story I think is is covered all over the place because it just captures the imagination so much there's films about it there's a film starring Richard Attenborough yeah. There's been a BBC three-part docudrama that was out about three years ago about it. Um, tons and tons on the internet, loads and loads of pictures. Uh, yeah, and it also paved the way for a change in death penalty laws as well, mm, as okay. we'll, we'll come on to as uh, as we go through the story. John Reginald Halliday Christie, known as Reg to his family, was born on the 8th of April 1899 and was raised in Northerham near Halifax, West Yorkshire. And he was the sixth of seven children. It's a lot of children. Uh, it is alleged that he was uh, abused by his father, I think in a sort of a sort of a slapped him round the ear a few times type, type way rather than anything more. Sorted, but uh, yeah, he was allegedly abused by his father, who was an austere and uncommunicative man. Okay, uh, and he was somewhat dominated by his mother and numerous sisters, who alternatively bullied him, but then sort of coddled him. So he never really knew quite where he stood with okay. these women in his life. Now, We've heard he... this start yeah. of a story <laughs> several times before. Haven't we? Abusive yes. father, weird relationship with his mother. Uh, Mother yeah. <laughs> and other female relatives. And other females, yes. While he was still a young boy, Christie saw the open coffin, and therefore the body, of his 
maternal grandfather, a man who, a bit like his father, he had grown to fear. Um, right, okay. He didn't really you know, have a good relationship with his granddad. And seeing him dead in his coffin gave the young John, or Reg, a real feeling of, of power as this man was now helpless. He, he was dead. He no longer feared him. Christie was regarded as being a bright lad, and he won a scholarship to the Halifax Secondary School. He excelled particularly at mathematics and algebra. It was later found out that he had an IQ of 128, okay. which, is, which is yeah pretty high. He sang in the church choir. He became a scout. But despite all that, he was unpopular with his sort of peers, with his fellow pupils. He didn't have many friends. He left school in uh, 1913, so he must have only been 13 or 14 at that age. Right. Um, and he became an assistant film projectionist. Okay. Now, by the time Christie had reached his teams, he already associated sex with death, dominance and violent aggression. I don't know what okay. sort of films they were showing in this <laughs> cinema, but <laughs> maybe that's irrelevant. But yeah, rendering him impotent unless in a situation where he could completely be in control. That's a problem, really, isn't it, as a teenager? Yeah, well... He's, he's already having those kind of... Apparently, yeah, and I must admit that um, most of this information, I have to admit, has come from open sources on the internet. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, why is he even trying out these things at such yeah. a young age? But... Um, but apparently his sort of first attempts at sex were failures, which earned him several unkind nicknames. Oh, no. So what help. he was doing, how people found out about it, all seems a bit weird, that aspect of it. But nevertheless, he uh, he discovered that, yeah, he was impotent from quite an early age. He was also a hypochondriac and an hysteric and often exaggerated or feigned illness as a ploy to get attention. Okay. When World War I broke out, Christie enlisted as a signalman, during which time he was hospitalised after a mustard gas attack. I presume it was in northern France somewhere. Where right. Been. Uh, and he claims that that attack left him blind. But apparently there are no records of his supposed blindness. In a later book about him, and bear in mind, there's been quite a lot written about John Christie, um, an author called Ludovic Kennedy wrote about Christie, and he claims that Christie exaggerated his blindness as well as a three-year period after the war when he claimed he was a mute. Okay. So all these sort of um, feigning blindness, feigning muteness were to, uh, yeah, attract attention, get attention. That's weird. <laughs> but I guess if he's not getting it from uh, anywhere else. <laughs> Nevertheless, on the 10th of May, 1920, Christie married 22-year-old Ethel Simpson from Sheffield. But because of these problems that we already know about, it was a dysfunctional marriage. as Christie was impotent with her and instead frequented prostitutes. Friends and neighbours gossiped that she only stayed with him out of fear. And after four years, they separated. When Christie moved to London and Ethel moved in to live with relatives in Yorkshire. Mm. 
Now, over the next decade, so sort of during the 1920s, Christie was convicted for several petty criminal offences. These included three months imprisonment for stealing postal orders while working as a postman. That was in April 1921. He spent nine months in Uxbridge jail for theft. That was in September 1924. In May 1929, he was sentenced to six months hard labour for assaulting a prostitute, a woman that he was actually living with at the time. Mm -mm. And then a little bit later on in 1933, uh, he was in prison for three months for stealing a car from a priest who had befriended him. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so very nice. Yeah. So despite his intelligence and, you know, from, and promise from his early years, um, he didn't seem to be able to hold down a very good job. And uh, he resorted to these sort of petty crimes. <clears throat> Nevertheless, uh, after his final imprisonment there for the car theft, in 1933, Christie and his wife reconciled and they got back together. Hmm. But he didn't really reform and he continued to seek out prostitutes to relieve his increasingly violent sexual urges. Mm. Um, <laughs> it never ends well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. He needed a counsellor. Yeah, or some sort of medical help. <laughs> yeah, which I guess in the 1930s wasn't easy to come by. No, if it existed at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Without him being put just into like an asylum or something like that. <laughs> uh, exactly that, yeah. So after five years of sort of living in all sorts of places here, there and everywhere, uh, in December 1938, Mr and Mrs Christie moved into the ground floor flat of 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbroke Grove area of Notting Hill, so West London. There are plenty of pictures of this, and I'll be putting some on our social pages, but I don't think I can emphasise it enough what a squalid, run-down, awful place this building was. Right, um, okay. It was, yeah, a, it was a, you know, a house of its... Well, it was an old house at the time, probably having been built in the 1800s, something like that. It had three floors, ground floor, first floor and second floor. And each floor was a flat. So there was a ground floor, a first floor and a second floor flat. It uh, looks rough. <laughs> it does look rough. Yeah. Looks All, like it could have been really nice. but It, it um, could have been. Yeah. 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 There was some landlord that owned it and um, rented out these these flats. There was one outside toilet which all the Ooh. residents of the building had to share there were no bathrooms in any of the flats there was this sort of wash house the sort of little tiny outside room it was sort of on the back of the ground floor kitchen but you got to it from outside next to the toilet which sort of right. had a, an old copper and old boiler in it that people could do okay. their washing in but apparently it was that was sort of left to uh decay and ruin itself it was right next door to a factory it was the end of a cul-de-sac and at the end of the road was a wall the other side of which was a factory and it was very close to the uh, to an overground section of the metropolitan train line where so whenever a train went by 
it would have been deafening for the occupants. Apparently, yeah. it wasn't a particularly salubrious place to live. No, <laughs> um, and yeah, it was run down. They had very little in the way of furniture. Um, just just to describe the ground floor, there was a there was a front door leading into a, a hallway. Off yeah. the stairs went straight up in front of you, as is sort of typical in any sort of house. There was a front room in which the Christies used as their sort of living room. There was a room behind that, so we might call it a back room, which they used as their bedroom. And then, like with so many houses of that time, there was like a, a narrow kitchen that right. went off the back of the, the hallway with a door, a side door going outside. Okay. And inside the kitchen, there was well, there was a sort of a range cooker and a sink. And there was like a, a, a cupboard that was sometimes used as a coal storage place. Uh, other places I've seen it described as a, as a pantry, but that was accessible from inside the kitchen. Cool. I'll, I'll, um, I'll put a diagram of the property up. Uh, cool. So I think, yeah, if anybody wanted to go outside to use the loo, they'd have had to have come down that corridor, down the hallway, and out through the side door. Yeah. And then outside to the, to the toilet. Okay. I just imagine everybody had potties. In those days. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Took him out the window. Now, on the outbreak of World War II, which, of course, was 1939, he applied to join the police force and was accepted. He was assigned to Harrow Road Police Station. Now, while he worked there, Christie began an affair with a woman who was working at the police station, whose husband was serving as a soldier in the war. And their relationship lasted until December 1943, so quite a few years, when the husband caught them together. Oh, no. And and, uh, the soldier beat up John Christie quite good, I think. (laughs) So that was the end of that affair. So He was still married to... Oh, yeah, he was still married to Ethel. Wow. But their dysfunctional marriage, and I think she just stayed with him for, well, I don't know, really. (laughs) For the reason that she was yeah, became a bit of a habit, maybe, or maybe she was scared of him, or um, convenience, <laughs> convenience, yeah, or she liked the lifestyle that uh, yeah. <laughs> she'd come to enjoy in this decrepit, rundown building. Mm, someone's got to like it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, around about this time in 1943 that Christie's violence and need for control took a very sinister turn Uh the first person that he killed was a young lady called ruth first she was 21 from austria who was working as a munitions worker and who supplemented her income by occasionally engaging in prostitution christy claims to have met first while she was soliciting clients in a snack bar in labrick grove uh, and according to his own statements, on the 24th of August, 1943, he invited her to his home to engage in sex while his wife was away visiting relatives. Afterwards, Christie impulsively strangled her on the bed with a length of rope. Oh. <laughs> to start with, he, uh, he stowed her body underneath the floorboards of the living room. So that's the room in the front of the house. But then the next day, he got her back up again and buried her in the small back garden that was 
uh, obviously at the back of the at the back of the property, which apparently yeah. the Christies had exclusive use of for being um, on the ground floor. Right. Apart okay. from the fact that other people would have actually gone out to use the loo, and <laughs> maybe the wash block, the wash the uh, the washroom, laundry room thing. Oh, apparently they had a cat and a dog at some point. So I suppose okay. they, uh, they had the garden for the cat and the dog as well. Yeah, so let the dog out. <laughs> yeah. Now, soon after that murder, at the end of 1940, so that was in August 43, at the end of 1943, Christie resigned as a special police constable. And the following year, he found new employment as a clerk at a radio factory in Acton, which is not very yeah. far from Notting Hill. In fact, Acton is where my school was back in yeah, there you the go. Day. There he met his second victim, a colleague called Muriel Amelia Edie. On the 7th of October 1944, he invited Edie back to his flat with the promise that he had concocted a special mixture that could cure her bronchitis. Mm. I wouldn't trust uh, that. <laughs> Muriel Edie was to inhale the mixture from a jar with a tube inserted in the top. The mixture was, in fact, just Fry's balsam, which oh. Christie used to disguise the smell of domestic gas. And once Edie was seated, breathing the mixture from the tube, with her back turned, Christie inserted a second tube into the jar, uh, which was connected to the gas tap. Wow. So as Edie breathed in this concoction of Fry's balsam air and stuff, she was also starting to breathe in gas basically that was being piped into the house for the well lighting probably actually i believe the house mm -hmm. was gas lit um okay not even electricity in it town gas as i think it was called back in those days was a manufactured sort of gas from okay. made from coal uh whereas today we get natural gas which comes literally out of the ground right um, yeah either out of the North Sea or down Putin's pipeline or <laughs> wherever it comes from. But, yeah. In fact, I remember when it must have been in the late 60s or early 70s when everybody had to have their gas appliances converted. And oh, okay. We, we had gas cooker, gas fire, things like that, and they and they wanted to be converted from town gas to natural gas. It was a big thing. Anyway, it was, um, it was a like huge, quite a big job. Yeah, it was, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, everybody ate well. A lot of people had gas in those days yeah. rather than electric cookers. And quite how they had to convert it, I don't know, some sort of regulator maybe because the natural gas was stronger or not as strong or, or something. Right. And I think they had to put in an artificial smell into it, whereas I think town gas, oh, okay. the manufactured stuff smelt like gas. <laughs> you know, oh, that's interesting. But natural gas, I believe, doesn't have a smell. So if you smell gas that. from a leak it's actually a smell that's introduced no so way. that, so that you that. can smell it yeah yeah i think that's i'm right cool. on that write it and tell us if i'm <laughs> wrong <laughs> anyway back to uh mural ed breathing in this concoction of gas and fries balsam uh soon she was rendered unconscious because of the high content of carbon monoxide while she's unconscious christy raped and strangled her before burying her in the garden alongside Ruth first. Oh dear. A young couple called Timothy and Beryl Evans moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in April 1948. 
So this is a few years after the uh, the first two murders. Beryl was actually pregnant. The room at the top was literally two rooms. They just had sort of a bedroom sitting area and a kitchen. That was it. On October the 10th, Beryl gave birth to a daughter who they named Geraldine. Apparently, there's, there's, there's loads of information about this, but apparently the relationship between Tim and Beryl wasn't great. He was unable to get much in the way of stable work. They were very, very mm. poor. Trying to raise his daughter in these squalid circumstances was just not ideal at all. No. And then in November 1949, Beryl discovered that she was pregnant again. And okay. she feared that because they couldn't afford it um, and things were so bad between them that it, this was going to be a very bad thing to to continue with. And this is in a year later? This is... So, so Geraldine was born in October 48 and it was yeah. a year later in November 49 when she found out she was pregnant again, yeah. Okay. Apparently, Christy, their ground floor neighbours had suggested to Beryl that he could have bought the baby that she didn't With all that doctor training that he'd had. With all that doctor training, yeah. On November the 8th, 1949, Christy used his special gas to incapacitate Beryl, who he then strangled and raped after she was dead. Oh, no. When Evans, yeah, poor Beryl, when Evans returned from work that night, Christy told him that Beryl had died during the procedure and that they had to hide the body because abortion was illegal at that Mm -hmm. time, especially if you're doing it in someone's home. Especially when you're not doing an abortion, you're just murdering someone to break them. Well, yeah. That's probably even more illegal. Yeah. Legal is legal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to also bear in mind that perhaps Evans, where whereas Christie had quite a high IQ, Timothy Evans was sort of the other end of the uh, okay of the range. Let's say there were reports that he had a history of being a bit of a storyteller. He never sold the, told the same story twice. There were questions about about him, right? So there they were with the body of his dead wife, a baby. And these two men. I'm not sure where Ethel was during all of this. <laughs> Christie convinced Evans that he should go and stay with family in Wales and to leave baby Geraldine in his care. Doesn't sound like a good idea. Now, Evans came back to the apartment several times after that to ask about Geraldine, but Christie said that he had found another couple to look after her. And basically, Geraldine was never seen again. And she would have been just over a year old. Yeah. In October, this is the November the following year. On the 30th of November, 1949, Evans went to the police in Merthyr Tidville, where he was staying, and said he had accidentally killed Beryl by giving her something contained in a bottle that a man had given him to help abort the unborn baby. And he told the police that he had disposed of her body in a sewer drain. Uh, and he told Why? the police. <laughs> I'm not not sure. There's, there's, mm. the, 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 this this story, to be honest, is um, th- there's no accurate account of it anywhere. No. If there was, okay. then if there was, then things might have been a bit more straightforward. Yeah, yeah. So he told the police that after arranging for Geraldine to be looked after, he had gone to Wales. Okay. So 
one account is that he tried to get Geraldine back from Christie, but never saw the baby again. Another account is that he told police that he had arranged for the child to be looked after and then he'd gone to Wales. Right. Nevertheless, police, I suppose, back in London, came round to the house at Ted Willington Place to examine the drain outside the front of the building, but they found nothing there. And they also found out that the manhole cover that he claims to have put it down was so heavy, it required at least three people, three of the police officers, uh, to lift it. Right. It was unlikely that he would have done it himself. Now, when he was re-questioned about this, Evans said that Christie had offered to provide an abortion for Beryl. Evans had then returned home from work on November the 8th to find Beryl dead. He said Christie then disposed of the body and made arrangements for people to look after Geraldine while Evans lay low. Right. So, about three different versions of this story now. Yeah. <laughs> now, during a search of Tenrillington Place on December the 2nd, 1949, the police found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine hidden in this little wash house <gasps> that was behind the kitchen next to the outside toilet. Right. Both of them had been strangled. And when Evans was shown the clothing taken from the bodies of his wife and child, he was also asked whether he was responsible for their deaths. And Evans, according to Ludovic Kennedy's book, which is funnily enough called Ten Billington Place, said, yes, yes. And then confessed to having strangled Beryl during an argument over debts and then strangling Geraldine two days later, after which he left for Wales. So who was it? Who did kill Beryl and the baby? Was it Christie? Was it Evans? Did Christie kill Beryl? Did Evans then kill the baby? This confession, along with other contradictory statements that Evans have made during the police interrogation, is often cited as proof of his guilt, though Ludovic Kennedy says in his book that the interrogation was worded by investigating officers in such a way to sort of confuse Evans, who would have been easily confused. And it was also uh, carried out sort of late at night and in early in, and in the early hours of the morning uh, to sort of put further stress sort of physical and right. emotional stress on uh, on on Evans to sort of confess to these things really so there's another factor was he forced into some mm. sort of confession Evans later recanted his testimony but the case went to trial which began on January the 11th 1950 John Christie was a key witness for the prosecution and he was instrumental in Evans being found guilty just two days later. God. So here we are. A 19, I mean, 1950 sounds not that long ago. No. <laughs> and again, they were having these really, really short murder trials, being found guilty. Yeah. Really quickly after it had taken place again as well. Yeah. Yeah, really quickly. So the murder, the alleged murder, whatever happened, was in November. Yeah, it's like two months later. And here we are in January, yeah, probably less than that. Yeah, because, yeah, about two months later, yeah, you're right. Uh, apparently the jury took only 40 minutes to come to the decision. Um, and after uh, a failed appeal in February 1950, 
Timothy Evans was hanged on March the 9th, 1950. Mm -mm. And he was hanged at Pentonville Jail by Albert Pierpoint. (sighs) There we go. Did Christy get away with murder and manage to uh, blame somebody else for it? Who knows? Mm. It would be a coincidence to have two murderers living in the same kind of set of flats. (laughs) Yeah. But they were the sort of flats that you might have too. <laughs> yeah, that's true to be fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Now, this time, Christy had been working at the post of his savings bank, I think as a clerk of some sort, a job which he'd had for the previous four years. Now, during the court case of Timothy Evans, he had to disclose that he had previous criminal offences against him. And as a result of that, he was sacked from the savings bank. Right. At which point he uh, he sank into a deep depression. He lost two stone in weight and he remained unemployed until August 1950, so later that year. Yeah. When he found uh, a clerical position with the British Road Transport Services. He stayed there until December the 6th, 1952, when he suddenly resigned. Christie claimed to his boss and to his neighbours that he had found a job with better prospects in Sheffield back in Yorkshire, and that he would be leaving London shortly to move there with his wife early in the new year. Then, when his wife sort of was not seen anymore, he claimed that she'd already moved and that he would be joining her in in Sheffield soon. Okay. In actual fact, Christie had murdered his wife in bed on the morning of December the 14th, 1952. Poor Ethel. She was last seen alive two days earlier. After he had murdered his wife, he altered the date of a letter that she had written to her sister, I think it was, from the 10th to the 15th um, to make it look like it was written after that she was, in fact, dead. On December the 16th, he took his wife's wedding ring to a jewellery shop and sold it. A week after that, he sold her watch. He kept writing letters to her sister in Sheffield up to early January, claiming that he was having to do the writing because rheumatism had prevented her from being able to uh, physically hold a pen and write. In January 1953, Christie sold most of the furniture. He kept three chairs, a kitchen table and a mattress to sleep on. On the 2nd of February, he forged his wife's signature on a bank account and emptied it. Not sure that there'd have been much in it, but anyway, there you go. And by this time, Christy no longer bothered to answer the letters that were arriving for his wife, uh, inquiring after her, because nobody had seen her. He was on a bit of a spree now, though. Uh, between January the 19th and March the 6th, 1953, so in a, yeah. in a period less than two months, Christy murdered three more women that he had invited back to 10 Rillington Place. I guess they were prostitutes. He picked them up, invited them back. He probably strangled them, had sex with them, and then got rid of their bodies. They were Kathleen Maloney, who was from Southampton, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Christie claimed that McLennan had wandered off and kept up the pretense for two weeks. Her boyfriend, Alex Baker presumed that she had gone back to her native Scotland. 
Christie moved out of 10 Rillington Place on March 20th, 1953. The couple that he'd got to live in, he'd found to live in the house, um, he defrauded by asking them to pay him £7, even though it wasn't his property to take money for. When the landlord visited the property and found that Christie had gone and these two people were living there, he forced them to move out. So, but they weren't very okay. happy with Christie. No. And the day that he left Rillington Place, Christie booked a room at the King's Cross Routon Houses, which I think were like sort of um, a hostel right. sort of place. He uh, he booked seven nights, but only stayed for four, leaving there on March 24th, 1953. Okay. Now, back at 10 Rillington Place, the landlord then allowed then current tenant on the top floor flat. So obviously the evidences weren't there anymore. Um, <laughs> a man they called, were all dead. Yeah, a man called Beresford Brown to use Christie's kitchen because they didn't really, well, they had a kitchen, but I don't think it was very, uh, very, very much. For some reason, right. um, Beresford Brown wanted to use the kitchen on the ground floor. While he was in that kitchen, Beresford Brown tried to hang a radio, a wireless set, as it would have been called then, <laughs> on the wall. And he was trying to put these brackets on the wall. And as he was trying to put these screws or whatever into the wall, he discovered that there was absolutely nothing behind this wallpaper. It okay. was just wallpaper <laughs> with nothing behind. And when yeah. he tore the wallpaper away, it revealed this sort of pantry come coal hole that they'd got in the kitchen, which had okay. been papered up by Christie. And inside there were the three bodies of <gasps> Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Oh, no. That's not very good concealing, though, is it? Not really. really no, just, just put a bit, bit of paper up. Yeah. <laughs> which was discovered so so quickly after having use of the kitchen. So when Beresford Brown found what he thought were bodies, he got someone else in the house to have a look and they agreed that they were in fact dead bodies. Bodies, yep. <laughs> yeah. It's not to be there very long. I mean, I suppose a couple of months. Brown informed the police and a citywide search for Christie began. Dum, dum, dum. This was now big news. It was in all the papers and all the rest of it. Three days later, Christie telephoned the News of the World and arranged to meet a reporter offering an exclusive interview. Oh, my God. He said he would allow himself to be handed over to the police in exchange. But the meeting never took place because Christie was frightened by the arrival of two policemen as he waited to meet the reporter. So after he left this hostel at Rowton House, Christie wandered all over London, sleeping on park benches at night. The search ended for him on the morning of March the 31st when he was arrested near Embankment at Putney Bridge after being challenged about his identity by a policeman. Mm. When asked what his name and address were, he said, John Waddington, 35 Westbourne Grove. He was then asked to remove his hat, because Christie had a very distinctive forehead, as, as you might see in photographs. He had a very high forehead and not much hair on top. Um, mm-hmm. The policeman recognised him and said, you're Christie, aren't you? And Christie confirmed that he was. Um, he was arrested on him he found an identity card and a ration book 
He also had his union card, an ambulance badge, <laughs> and an old newspaper <laughs> clipping about the remand of Timothy Evans. Mm. So they'd caught him. By the time he was arrested, he had murdered eight people. So just to summarise, there were Ruth first in August 1943, Muriel Eady in October 1944, Beryl Evans. I mean, she was only 20 when she was uh, killed in 1949 during this, yeah, gosh. During this uh, supposed abortion. Geraldine Evans, who was only, yeah, no, it wasn't Geraldine Evans, who was 13 months in, also in November 1949. Well, this this is what they, they claim he did. Yeah. Geraldine Evans, uh, although there was always that question mark over whether Beryl or Geraldine yeah. were killed by him or by Evans. Ethel Christie, his wife, who, she was 54 when she was killed on uh, the 14th of December 1952. Then Rita, Kathleen and Hectorina, in January, February, March, respectively, 1953. Oh, my goodness. So Ruth and Muriel were in the garden, which obviously the police found eventually. Beryl and Geraldine, yep. we know, were in the wash house behind Pile of the Wood. Ethel was under the floorboards, and Rita, Kathleen, and Hectorina were in this sort of pantry, come coal hole, cupboard thing off the kitchen. Jeez. Didn't really try very hard to hide any of those bodies, though, did he? Really? Not really, no. So um, for a clever person, yeah, supposedly. <laughs> and 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 when you think about the fact they got these bodies, some of which were prostitutes, some of which were young girls or young people, and they were buried in and around the house, it does put me in mind of the Wests to a certain yeah. extent, um, yeah. which was then well. 30 or 40 years later, really, wasn't it? 80s and yeah. 90s. Uh, in a similar <laughs> yeah, run-down like... house, tall yeah. house with flats and rooms upstairs yeah. that other people lived in. It's, there are certain parallels. Definitely, um, yeah. Christy was placed under arrest and at first only admitted to the murders of the women in the coal hole in the kitchen right. and his wife. Uh, on the next day, on the 1st of April 1953, Christie was charged with his wife's murder. On the 15th of April, he was charged with murdering the three prostitutes that were found uh-huh. in the uh, in the pantry coal hole. Then when police had dug up the garden and found the skeletons in the uh, the back garden, Christie admitted responsibility for their deaths as well. On the 27th of April... He confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, which Timothy Evans had originally been charged with during the police investigation in 1949, although he denied killing baby Geraldine. Okay. However, on one occasion following his trial, Chris indicated that he may have been responsible for her death as well. (laughs) But it's speculated that Christie would not have wanted to admit to the his guilt in the baby's case because he didn't want to alienate the jury from him wanting to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. And also for his own safety from fellow inmates who might have thought, well, if he's a baby killer, we're going we're gonna to beat him up. That's fair enough. Uh, on June the 5th, 1953, Christie confessed to the murders of Muriel Edie and Ruth First, which helped the police identify 
the skeletons of the bodies that had been out there for what ten years by that stage, I guess. Yeah. Christie was only tried for the murder of his wife. Oh, okay. Which is sometimes the case, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because if you try to try, if you've got a watertight case against one person, don't spoil it by having a less <laughs> yeah case of her. Um, his trial began on the twenty second of June, nineteen fifty three. So again, he was arrested in well end of March. She again came to court pretty quick. It was actually in the same court that Evans had been tried in three years earlier. <sighs> Christie pleaded insanity with his defence describing him as mad as a March hare. <laughs> and he claimed to have a poor memory of the events. Now, Dr. Matheson, a doctor at HM Prison Brixton, who evaluated Christie, was called as a witness by the prosecution. He testified, using medical terminology of the time, that Christie had an hysterical personality but was not insane. Okay. The jury rejected Christie's plea and after deliberating for 85 minutes, found him guilty. It's not a very long deliberation. <laughs> no. uh, on the 29th of June, 1953, Christie announced that he would not be peeling against his conviction. Okay. On the 2nd of July, Timothy Evans' mother wrote to Christie asking him to confess all. Uh, on the 8th of July, 53, his MP, George Rogers, interviewed Christie for 45 minutes about the murders. Five days later, Home Secretary David Maxwell Fife said that he could not find any grounds for Christie to be reprieved. Yeah, good. Christie's final visitors were ex-army friend Dennis Haig on the 13th of July, along with a prison governor and Christie's sister, Phyllis Clark, who both spoke to Christie the night before his execution. George Rogers, who was uh, his MP, wanted to speak to Christie a second time, but Christie refused to meet him again. Right. Christie was hanged at 9am on the 15th of July, 1953, the same as with Evans at HM Prison, Pentonville. His executioner was also Albert Pierpoint. There you go. Um, after he'd been sort of prepared for execution, Christie complained that his nose itched. Pierpoint assured him that it won't bother you for long. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. It definitely wouldn't. And then after the execution, his body was buried in the precincts of the prison. Ugh. Now, obviously, there's still doubt, I think even to this day, around the killing of... Geraldine Evans and her mother Beryl Evans. Yeah. Public opinion was widely the case, though, that they thought he was guilty of that, which in fact meant that Evans had been found guilty and executed wrongly. Apparently, there's no definitive evidence to prove or disprove Evans's innocence or Christie's guilt in Geraldine's murder. Mm. The Braybid inquiry conducted during 1965 to 66, concluded that Evans had probably killed his wife, but not his daughter. Yeah, that's interesting. In 1966, Timothy Evans was granted a posthumous pardon. Wow. So, yeah. In actual fact, he was um, reburied in Greenford Cemetery. So he was moved no into Greenford, so place of my birth and upbringing yeah. <laughs> which uh, was i felt was interesting yeah 
So um, there's a bit of analysis here about the fact that the police made several mistakes in their handling of the case. I mean, (laughs) no kidding. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Especially in the case of overlooking the remains of Christie's previous murder victims in the garden. Right. Um, Because those two bodies had already been in the ground for quite a while before Beryl and Geraldine were looked for, you know, were, were searched for. Apparently, a femur from one of the bodies was found actually propped up against a fence. What? So, <laughs> how that happened, how that got there, no idea. Probably the dog. Could have been, yeah. Could well have been an animal or something that, that dug it up. Several searches were made of the house after Evans confessed to placing his wife's remains in the drains, but the policeman conducted the search did not go into the wash house. So they missed. Mm. There's so many things that they they missed. Christie later admitted that his dog had unearthed Mural Edie's skull in the gardens shortly after these police searches. So, yeah, maybe that the dog had dug up the leg bone as yeah. well. Uh, and that Christie had thrown the skull into an abandoned, bombed out house <laughs> in nearby St. Oh Mark's God. Road. Jeez. So, there was clearly no systematic search made of the scene. Uh, no. If there had been, other remains would have been found and could well have found Christie to have been the perpetrator. Yeah, and there was complete lack of expertise in handling any forensic evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, as we know, has come on leaps and bounds in the last mm, 70 years. 70 years, yeah. The whole case of Timothy Evans was cited when the death penalty was being reviewed by by parliament um okay. and and that gave great weight to the case for it to be abolished because of when there are miscarriages of justice or perceived miscarriages of justice there's no going back nice <laughs> once someone's been hanged um all very well to posthumously pardon someone but doesn't do them a huge amount of good does it not really no yeah so as i mentioned 10 rillington place there's an, the 1970 film, which was based largely on Ludovic Kennedy's book. That's the one with Richard Attenborough as Christian, John Hurt as Evans. Really? Um, parts of the film were shot in Rillington Place itself, which, wow. it's, itself, which was later renamed Ruston Close after Christie's execution, using a similar neighbouring gaslit property. So that would imply that the house itself was gaslit at the time. Yeah. Um, and shortly after that film was made in 1970, the entire street was uh, demolished. Probably for the best. Yeah. The street is now completely redeveloped and has a garden area in the space where number 10 would have been. So there we go. That's the story Ooh. of John Christie and 10 Rillington Place and his grisly murders and uh, the controversy around the hanging of Timothy Evans. That was really interesting, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it is it is an interesting story. Yeah, definitely. Just yeah, how we got how we got away with it again for so long. Like I feel like we say this well, quite a lot of these people. But then Bungle yeah, the, police practices, no forensics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The total yeah, miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And if he'd just been a little bit cleverer about what he'd done with the bodies, then they might never have been found. Or yeah. you know, certainly for not a lot longer. So, as I said, there's loads of pictures of this. There's pictures of him, pictures of him in court, pictures of him being 
bundled into police vans, diagrams of the house, diagrams of where the bodies were located in the house, pictures of the house. It's uh, right. Um, there's no shortage. I'll, I'll select a few and uh, and put them on our social pages. Cool. I'll put them on Instagram, which you can find at Dad and Daughter Do Death, and I'll put them on Facebook. Just search for Dad and Daughter Do Death. And as ever, if you'd like to contact us to talk about this case or any of the other cases that we've uh, talked about, then uh, you can always drop us a line by emailing us at dadanddaughterdodeath at gmail.com. Thank you. It was very interesting. Yeah. And if you're interested in it, if, if you'd like to find out more, there is tons out there. But maybe like go and just... find the film to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Or the BBC series. I, I watched it a year or so ago. I'll have a look for that. Three-parter. It's got um, Jodie Comer in it. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. I think she plays Beryl. Right. Well, thank you very much. You're and, very welcome. Uh, thank you for listening as well. If you found this episode interesting, please do let us know. Uh, leave us a like, a rating, a review, a comment. We always love to see them. Yeah, we certainly do. It's good to know that... Uh, that we're being listened to. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, join us next time. And once again, Dad and daughter do death.